So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to the book of 1 John for one last time. This is our finale for our series that we've been walking through over the last number of months through 1 John entitled Authentic, Living Fully Integrated Lives. And so we've been talking about how God has designed us not to live in compartments, but we have the challenge of wanting to live in compartments so we can kind of separate our lives from God as opposed to being really unified in who we are. And so we've been walking through that. And so this morning, in just the last few verses of the whole book, we're going to talk about remembering the truth and some key things that John highlights as kind of like the last kind of information that he gives to us about things that are important for us to move forward. And the concept tr of truth being kind of a theme that runs throughout the book of 1 John is something for us, is really important for us to remember because truth is something that you and I, when we believe it, will base our lives on, will base our decisions on, will base our future on it. Things that you and I believe to be true are things that lead to the next step of life. But if you and I think something is true and don't know it's false, then we end up making decisions that don't lead us toward God, that lead us away from God, that don't lead us to life, but lead us away from life. And that's why understanding some simple concepts of truth are so important. And that's what this whole series really has been about, and understanding primarily, we'll talk about this, who Jesus is and how he impacts our life and how he relates to us at a very personal level. Because when you and I see something that looks like the truth, in fact, the enemy is very crafty. He will make something appear to be true so you and I believe it, so that we'll react to it only to discover that it was a lie. It's never that a lie doesn't come to us and present itself as a lie. It doesn't say, I'm a lie, believe me. It, it comes in the form of the truth. And when we think it's true, then we react. So I have a, a cousin who's been one of, my, one of my favorite cousins, and he's kind of crazy. I mean, not, I mean, in, in a good way. He, he's crazy in the way he lives life. There, he has no fears. He lives life to the full. He lives life on the edge. And so he's lived all over the world. He's traveled all over the world. And when he was young, um, he, he started with a real love for rock climbing and, uh, and mountaineering and all kind of stuff. And so when he was first getting involved with that, um, my cousin, the, 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 he grew up in a house up in the Bay Area. And uh, it's a three-story house. And up on the third level is their living room. And in, uh, outside their living room, there's a deck. And so because it was built on a, on a hillside, that the top of that deck down to where the ground kind of meets the base of the foundation is a good 50 or 60 feet. It's a pretty good drop from that deck. And so one day as he was learning how to use his, he had a harness and ropes and all kind of stuff, he, he, he was doing this constantly, and, and this is just his personality. So one day he, he got all his harness on and he rigged up his ropes to the deck, and so he stepped over the rail so that he was outside of the deck, and he was leaning back on the deck so he could look into the living room, but he wasn't standing on the deck, he was outside the rail. And inside the living room was his mom, my aunt, and so she was doing whatever, and so he starts yelling for her. Like, you know, it's like, you know, like a kid wants mom or dad to look at them, see how proud they are, and so he's like, mom, mom, look at me, look at me. So she turns around, and as she turns around, this is what she sees. She sees my, my, my cousin, her son, waving with a smile and just falling backwards, and then disappears <laughs> out of nowhere. Now she freaks. She thinks my son has just committed suicide. She knows it's like a 60-foot drop. So she runs out to the edge of the deck thinking she's going to look down and see her son's broken body down at the on the ground level, only to look over the edge to see him just swinging on the rope about 20 or 30 feet down, just waving at her and smiling. Of course, at that moment, she wanted to kill him because of what he had ca caused her to do. But obviously, in that moment, what did she see? She saw that she thought she saw because she couldn't see any of the harness. It was all below the railing. She just saw her son without any safety precautions jumping off the deck. Now, in reality, it wasn't, that wasn't the truth. But how many times in our life do you and I perceive something? And in our minds and in our hearts, we're like, oh, that's true. I know that's true. 
only to later find out that it wasn't. And we've made decisions based on that lie that we thought was the truth. That's why in the closing remarks here, John gives us some key things that we're going to just touch on briefly that will be important for us to remember. So let me start in verse 16. We'll go down to verse 21 of 1 John 5. John says, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death, and I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone or everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and that the whole world lies in the power of the, uh, of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So there's five things I just want to touch on that are kind of John's final words that are important about some things that are true that for some of us we we will remember these but many times in the way we live our lives we forget them and the first thing look at verses 16 and 17 the first truth to remember as we close this book is that sin is not the end for those who embrace jesus so what does john say he says in verse 16 if anyone who sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death he should ask and what will god do god will give him life And then he says in verse 17, all wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. So we'll go to to the other parts of the passage, but but what I do want to clarify before I I talk about this specific specific point, John's saying there's sin that leads to death and there's sin that doesn't lead to death. Now we can interpret that, that John's referring to one particular sin that we could go hunt down and say, this is the one that is the unpardonable sin. That's not this message. That's, That's for another day. Because what John is getting at ultimately is he's saying this. He's saying sin, all sin ultimately leads to death apart from Jesus. But there is sin that doesn't lead to death because of Jesus. And that's the key thing to remember is that apart from Jesus at work in our lives, apart from a deep, profound relational connection to Jesus, every single one of us has a death sentence. Every single one of us faces death, which is a separation from God, which is a place that none of us want to experience. But because of what Jesus did in his death and his resurrection and what he did for us, sin does not lead to the end. It doesn't lead to death for us, which is good news. That means that of all people in all of the world, those who would call on Jesus and be followers of Jesus have the antidote for sin. We have the antidote to death. We have the thing that will bring life to all of us. The question is, at a personal level, do we realize that for ourselves? But maybe for some of us, even maybe more important today, is do we realize what we have that we have yet to offer to other people? Because what is John saying? He says, if you see a brother or sister, you see a person who is living in a sin or committing a sin, and, and you know that if you ask God on their behalf, or if you pray for them, or if you share the truth with them, that God will grant them life, why wouldn't you and I, apart from any other thing in life, think that that is the most valuable thing that we can do for anyone around us, for a family member, or a friend, or a neighbor, that we see someone living in sin, and instead of doing what, what the default for most of us is, is when we see somebody living a sinful life, and we encounter them, the first default is what? Judgment. It's like, hey, that's wrong. You shouldn't be doing that. Did you know that, that, that that's violating God's law? Did you know that's disobeying God? Did you know that's sin? That's the first thing we come out instead of saying, you know what, I know that you're living and you're in struggling in this particular area of life. You know what, I have an answer to that for your life. 
I have the hope of who Jesus is. I have the power of forgiveness that Jesus grants to those who believe in him, that we offer that first, which is the antidote because judgment never, ever brings freedom. Judge only, judgment only brings condemnation to people's lives. And that's not the way that God treats us. God doesn't come to us on the basis of judgment. He comes to us on the basis of grace. Just, just think about the moment. If you and I actually lived our life believing the fact that we have the antidote for the sin of the world, We have the one thing that will breathe life into people in this world and the next. Do you think that maybe we would live life just a little bit differently if we really believed that we had was that valuable and that important? A number of years ago, we went on vacation, took kind of a road trip, and ended up in Arizona. We were staying at a friend's condo, and so about two or three days in, we were watching the news, and I know Lauren Thordycroft, who's our, our children's director, she's not here today, but she grew up in, in Arizona. She, she knows this. She's aware of this, but obviously in Arizona, unlike where we live, there's, there's things that live in the desert that don't necessarily live in the city, and one of those is scorpions. So you have to deal with that when you live kind of in a desert climate and desert area. And so Kim and I, were, we were watching the news one night. This is a local news. And they were doing kind of this thing on scorpions. Of course, when you're watching, you're like, oh, no, we're going to die, right? We're like in desert. And, and so we're watching it. And they're going through all these different kinds of scorpions and describing them. And, and then they describe one in particular that is one that you really need to be aware of because they said, actually, the sting in small children can actually result in death. And so we're watching that, and they said, but because of technology and hospitals being more close to to where people are, and because an antidote has been developed, they hadn't had a death from this particular scorpion uh, sting for since like the 1960s. And so, but you still kind of like, you're watching it, and I remember I was like steadying the screen to know which is good, which is bad, which is the one you step on, and which is the one you run from, right? And they were describing one that's the, the one that's particularly a concern. It's called the bark scorpion, and its sting could literally lead to death for small children. And so as we watched that, like two days later, I was in the kitchen, and I was making breakfast, which is kind of our, our vacation tradition that I do. So I was making pancakes for the kids, and so I'm, I'm, the kids are out in the living room with Kim. They're watching TV, and I'm in the kitchen, and I kid you not, out of the drain comes a scorpion. And I remember when it first came out, it kind of freaked me out just a little bit. But I paused because I saw his head come out. And I thought, I want the rest of him to come out because I studied that screen and I know what bark scorpions look like. And so he starts crawling out and he gets to sink. I'm like, sure enough, that's the one. And I was looking at that and I'm thinking, okay, that's bad. It's not a good thing to have in the house. And so, but I had a spatula in my hand. And it's amazing how the tip of a spatula fits nicely behind the head of a scorpion. And so I slid it in there and I just pushed really hard on the sink and off popped his head. Now he squirmed for a little while. And then, of course, I did this so calmly, I didn't say anything. I just brushed the remains back into the sink, turned on the garbage disposal, and that was all she wrote. Now the kids, I didn't tell anybody at first, like, hey, there's a bark scorpion in our kitchen. We all would have run out of the condo. But as, as I, I think a thought about that, I was thinking, so here's the one thing that if we let it loose will kill us all, or at least kill my kids. But it's also the one thing that there's an antidote for, and also there's something even more m- better than an antidote, and that is to kill the source of the sting and to kill the scorpion. You know, the Bible actually talks about that the sting of sin is what? Death. Jesus comes along and he destroys that through the cross. That's the antidote for our sin. So you and I don't have to live in fear, but every single day of our life, when you're driving to work, when you're encountering your neighbors, when you're dealing with your coworkers who you can't stand, you have the antidote for their sin and brokenness. You have the answer to what they need in life. And God has placed you there so that you can help them to see in Jesus is the answer to life. It's the answer to their sin. Second thing, 
thing to remember is remember this truth. Sin leads to the end for those who reject Jesus. So John mentions there's a sin that leads to death, and I, and I do not say that one should, you should pray for that. So again, he's referring to, obviously there could be an ultimate sin, which again, we're not going to take time to, but all sin apart from Jesus leads to death. That's, that's a given. Apart from Jesus, there is no hope. And so when he says that, that means that you and I have to be willing to think about that there's the potential within me, if I live in sin in my life, that I've placed a death sentence over me. That's the reality of sin. And sin that doesn't find its way into the grace of God through Jesus is sin that finds its way to death. There is no hope apart from that. And sometimes we don't think about that because if you're like me over time, when you come to Jesus and you realize you've made a commitment to him, but sometimes over time we become laxed and we become comfortable and we become familiar with old patterns of behavior that we end up going back into and we end up living in sin not realizing the scope or the depth of what we've experienced. And we have to be aware of that, that we have the antidote if it's applied. But you and I have to understand that the progression of sin in our life works this way. All of us, because we are human, we find our way into sin. There isn't a human being other than Jesus himself who hasn't found their way into sin in their lifetime. But this is the way it works. Somewhere down the line in your life, sin entered the equation when you made a decision that you acted on that was less than what God had purposed for your life. It was a violation of what God had intended for you. The Bible defines it as sin. The New Testament definition is missing the mark. So you've missed the mark for God. And at that moment, when sin entered the equation of your life, whether you knew it or not, whether you felt it or not, there was a death sentence that was pronounced over your life because that was the price of your sin. That was, that was what you had to be paid for your sin. And you live with that, whether you knew it or not, you live with that over you every single day of your life until, until the moment that you met Jesus. The moment that you encountered his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness and you understood his death on the cross and his payment for your sin, which set you free. Because at that moment, guess what? The death sentence didn't disappear. It just got transferred. It got transferred from you Onto Jesus. There's that moment. But what if you've never had that moment? What if you've never brought your sin before God and offered it over to Him in exchange for forgiveness because what Jesus has done on the cross? What if you've never experienced that in your life? Then what that means is that for every single person who finds themselves in that category, that death sentence still hangs over them. It still belongs to them. They, whether they know it or not, they still own it. Why? Because sin, apart from Jesus, leads to death. That means whether you know it or not, you and I live and are surrounded by people who have this death sentence hanging over their life. And the question is, do they even know? Do they even know that you're living in life while they're living in death? And God's placed you next to them to help them to see the sin that leads to death in your life is actually the sin that can be forgiven that actually will lead to life. So John says these important things that we, the way we live out our life, the way we see ourselves and understand that. We don't want that execution date to come true for people. We want them to experience the grace of God. Then the third thing, this third truth to remember is embracing Jesus breaks the cycle of sin. In verse 18, John says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who has been, was born of God, God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. So is John saying, the moment you come to Jesus, you never sin the rest of your life. Don't we wish that was the truth? It's not. We know that we still will deal with the issue of sin in our life. But 
the transforming work of God in our life by his Holy Spirit starts to show itself to be true in us when those things that used to be a normal habit and pattern in our life begin to change. For some, it's overnight. It's instantaneous. For other, others, it's just over time. But there's this transforming work that God is doing deep inside of us that the old way of living, the pattern of living that used to be kind of what was the norm, no longer is normal anymore because God's transforming us from the inside out. That means that we've, we've experienced that. But that's only when we come to a place of submitting ourselves to Jesus do we start to see that. And that means it's important to understand if you've seen in your life that from the moment you said yes to Jesus to the way you're living your life today, nothing looks different than what you looked like before you said yes to Jesus, then you need to take a step back and ask the question, do I really know him? Have I experienced his transforming work? Because if I have, then something's going to change in me. Not I'm going to learn to be a better person, but something inside of me is so going to change in terms of even the way I view my own sin and brokenness that I won't be able to live the same way that I used to live. See, because what happens is if we're living in that same pattern, we get stuck and don't realize that we haven't fully accessed the healing power of God through Jesus' death on the cross. Anybody, okay, we're going to go old school. Okay, they've made a comeback. Vinyl records are making a comeback, which is kind of crazy. Because when I was younger, we actually had vinyl records that weren't like classic. But now you can actually go to stores and people collect them and those kind of things. And, but I remember, remember when I was really, really young, I remember the first kind of, any kind of way we could listen to music in the car. I think it was like five. I remember my parents had an eight track. Anybody remember that? And we had one eight track and it was like some instrumental worship music that we listened to so much that it got warbly. And every time you listened to it, it just sounded weird. And then I remember finally we got like, we got a record player at home. It was like really cool. Like all my friends had one. But I grew up in in a good home, but a relatively kind of conservative religious home. So we weren't allowed to have non-Christian music in our house. Except when I got a little bit older, we found a way to slip in. In fact, this will tell you how old I am, late 70s. When, you know, remember the Bee Gees? Remember Saturday Night Fever? Remember Staying Alive? We got the 45 of Staying Alive. Me and my sisters. So if mom and dad left the house, pop on Staying Alive. It's a dance party with my sisters. It was great. But, you know, one thing was always true about vinyl records is they would skip. And so you'd stick the needle on there and the song would start playing. And sometimes it'd just be a, a you know, piece of dust. You just pick up the record and you blow it off, put it back on. It works great. Other times there was actually a scratch in the vinyl. And so you'd be listening to it, and as it goes around, and it would get to that same part, and then it would skip, and you're like, oh, just frustrating. You know, you try to take really good care of it. What was the most irritating about that was not just the skip that would jump to another groove, but it was the skip that would repeat. You remember that skip? You'd get to the same part of the song, and it would jump back three seconds, and it would jump back three seconds, and no matter what you did except for going and moving yourself, it wouldn't change. It would just keep repeating, 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 until finally you have to go and lift the needle, move it to another groove, and then you get beyond it. Sin is the same way that you and I don't realize that we get to the same part of the song every time and we end up right back in the same pattern over and over and over again. Now, the bummer about a vinyl record is you can't get the skip out unless you get a brand new one. That doesn't apply to the way that Jesus works because he takes what, what is broken and what is scratched in our life and removes the scratch, removes the stain of sin in our life so that we no longer have to repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat. Some of us are still repeating. We still have skips that we haven't let Jesus address in our life. We haven't let his grace be applied to that so that there's healing and transformation so that we don't live in that habitual pattern. That's why John's saying, listen, this is true. You know if you know Jesus because you're not skipping all the time. You're finding a way out of that cycle as Jesus helps to transform you from the inside out. And then fourth thing, 
remember this truth. Embracing Jesus changes our identity. And John says in verse 19, And we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So John's saying, listen, you're with Jesus, you're from God, you're a part of his family. If you're not, you're under the control of the evil one. There's, there's no middle ground. But what's so important about he's saying is that we're from God and this understanding is our identity. And we talked about that through this, through this book. Is that when you say yes to Jesus, you are given a new identity. It's a new identity that doesn't necessarily erase all of who you are, but it does deal with the issue of sin in our life to make us brand new. But in that new identity, what it does is it in, wrapped up in that identity is a sense of purpose and understanding about what life looks like and what life's supposed to be. Because now you have an understanding of the bigger picture that you have value and you have meaning and you have purpose because you belong to Jesus and now you're part of God's family. Now, if you don't have that, you're trying to figure out on your own how life works, how to overcome brokenness in your life, how to navigate things in your life that you don't have answers to, and in a sense, you're lost. And that's why the Bible's so vivid throughout so many passages in Scripture. When we come into God's family, it describes the process as adoption, that we are adopted into God's family. We become a part of us. We become his sons and his daughters. And that's significant because some of you in, the, in this room right now, you have been adopted. I know in my family, too, my nieces have been adopted and this process of adoption. But that whole process is so important because when you think about the reality of the way adoption works, if you take an orphan that has no family to call their own, they are left on their own to try to provide for themselves to try to fend for themselves, to try to protect themselves, to try to advance in life on their own without any help from anybody. But then a family comes along, and when they adopt that child, that child has now a sense of value, a sense of understanding, love, acceptance, purpose in their life. And I've seen that happen so many, so many times. And that's why what's happening in Haiti is significant. God is growing the church in Haiti, and one of the ways God's growing the church is by reaching kids that are coming to know Christ, and all the more in orphanages where kids are going to be coming out of places of bondage, slave labor, and also sex trade, and all those things that are happening in Haiti, kids are coming out of that, and here's the beauty of, of an orphanage, here's the beauty of adoption, it changes the destiny of a child's life, that's profound, I mean, what, what could be more important than that? To think about that, and I, I saw a report, I mean, I've seen this time and time again. There's a lady named India Howell who is now living in Tanzania. And a number of years ago, she went to Tanzania to, to climb uh, Mount Kilimanjaro with a friend. And when she got to Africa, she, all she had intended to do was to go with her friend, climb a mountain, and go home. But she said, when I got to, to Tanzania, she goes, I felt like a sense like I belonged here. So she went home for three months. She was the CEO of a company. She quit her job. She came back to Tanzania, and she got a job in a tour company inside one of the wild uh, animal, animal refuges. So she would do tours and help people facilitate things. And so she did that for just, just to feel like, okay, I feel like I'm home here. She got to know people, and one of the people she knew was one of her coworkers. And, and one day he came to her, and he announced to her, uh, he said, listen, I, I'm leaving my job, I'm leaving my family, and I'm leaving my son, and I'm done with him, and literally just walked away. Well, she saw this little boy and realized he had no hope because he had nobody. He had no parents and no family, and so she took him in. She adopted him. And so then, then as she did that, she started, her eyes opened to the reality of what she was living in. She said, every day when I would go into the city to kind of do kind of promotion for this tour company, he, she said, I would see all these kids that literally lived on the street. 
they, had, they were orphaned, and so they ended up on the street. And so she said, I took in three more. And then there was four of us, four of them. And, then, and I moved into a house that I rented. And, and then what happened is word got out, this white lady is adopting kids. And so these kids start finding their way to her, and then people start bringing kids to her. And, and now, years later, she's established this thing that's called the Rift, Va- Fam- or the Rift Valley Children's Village that's for orphans in Tanzania, which is one of the poorest countries in the world. And she has a, a businessman. It's sort of interesting the way they set this up. It's a business. So he kind of coordinates things, and she's kind of the PR person. And she, she legally is all of the children's adoptive mother, and he legally is all of their adopted father. So even though they're not married, they're mom and pop to these kids. And they've had this sense of identity. And so every child that they were sharing, they had these testimonies, these kids, these kids coming in off the street, they had no hope. And now they have life, and they can thrive, and they can experience what it looks like to be a kid, to be growing into an adult that actually experiences life. That's the way it is with us and God. God says, listen, I choose through Jesus' death on the cross to pay the price for your ransom, to bring you into my family, and so now you belong to me. Your identity has changed. No longer are you an orphan. No longer are you a slave. No longer are you lost. You've been found. And he embraces us and brings us in to dwell with him. This is so significant because you and I have to understand the process of God bringing a broken person, a sinner, into relationship with him is the greatest celebration in heaven. Luke chapter 15, I was drawn there this morning as we were praying before the first service, and if you don't know Luke chapter 15, three profound stories, lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. All three of them record something of value that was lost and then was found or recovered and the celebration that ensues. And it actually says in the passage, when one sinner turns from their ways and finds their way into relationship with God, all of heaven throws a party. This huge celebration. In fact, in, in the last story in The Lost Son, the, that's the ultimate kind of demonstration. A son basically goes his own way and does his own thing, but then when he returns back to his father's household, instead of the finger of judgment being waved at him, his father says, you're my son and he welcomes him home, and he throws him a party. That's the way God works. He wants to welcome us in to relationship. Some of us need to be reminded of that today because you still are the orphan wandering around trying to live life and figure it out on your own. You struggle with value and worth, and because of that, you haven't yet to fully experience Jesus' love in your life. It's the quote that Danny read earlier about basically, if you know that Jesus loves you, it doesn't matter. Nothing else matters. And there's a final thing I want to touch on. And that is in verse 20, the final point of truth we want to highlight is that embracing Jesus means embracing the truth. He says, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. It does not say that we know about him. It says that we may know him. Remember we talked about this over the last month or so, going through the book of John. When John says the word believe, he's not thinking about information that we believe about Jesus. He's thinking about a relational connection we have with Jesus that's different, that the Hebrew understanding of knowledge is not information, it's relational context. So for us to know him means there's a relational connection, and that's why it's so important. To know Jesus is to know the truth. You cannot know the ultimate truth apart from Jesus. That's important. The reason it's important is because we, many of us, we're on a, on a journey and, a, and we are on this 
pathway to discover truth as though truth is some secret information that gets infused into our lives, and then we go, oh, the light came on for me, and now I see. The only way the light comes on for any of us is if we actually know Jesus. Knowing Jesus relationally is what brings us to know the truth. Why is that significant? Because we have separated Jesus from the truth and made Christianity into understanding information about sin, the world, Jesus, and God. And then if we have the right belief system, the right knowledge of God, ta-da, we're saved. Not true. We know it's been proven. Look at the religious leaders. They knew more about God than anybody who walked the face of the planet, but they were so far from him. Because their religious system did not create a context for the God of the universe to become human and relate to them in a very personal way. They didn't have a context for that. And then Jesus shows up and they can't handle it. Because their belief system squeezed God right out of the equation. And for some of us today, we have to be careful. This is the very thing that happens to us. This is the very experience that we live out in our lives. And that's why I've said this so many times and I continue to do it in my life. We have to go back to Jesus over and over and over and over again, which means there should be a rhythm and a cycle, a good cycle in all of our lives where I know for me, I go back at least once a year, if not more, and I go back to one of the Gospels and I read the Gospel again and again and again and again. Why? Because I forget who Jesus is. I forget what he said. I forget what it really means to know him. I forget what he calls me to. And so right now, I am barely a third of the way through Matthew, and it's been over a month. That's how slow it is for me. Because I'm going through, and I'm, I'm not, I kid you not, I'll come through passages, and I'm telling you, I've read through the Gospel of Matthew 50 to 75 times, and I'll read through it right now. I'm like, how in the world did I miss that? Who added that into my Bible since last time? It's always been there. It's because God's reminding me, and it's always these truths about what did Jesus say? Who is Jesus? One of the best things that you could ever tell somebody who's seeking to find who God is or is just new coming to Christ is just tell them to read the Gospel of John. Just read the Gospel of John. It's just the simple scriptures that God inspired to tell about who Jesus is and let the Holy Spirit do his work to open up their minds and say, wow, that's who Jesus is. It happens. People get saved reading the Gospel of John. It's amazing because God's Spirit works in them. But I want to close with this, and this is important as we finish this series so John starts out as we walk through 1 John, and I remember understanding, he was going after a particular mindset that people in that time were believing, and that was this idea of Gnosticism, which was the physical reality is bad, spiritual reality is good, they are separate entities and don't ever really cross paths, which meant, in other words, you could live in the physical like you wanted to. You could do whatever you wanted to do, and it would never impact the spiritual reality between you and God. You could live in compartments. John comes along and says, that's not the case. That's not the case. Because what happens when you live that way, it's very easy to become religious about doing certain things. Why? Because there's no personal connection inside of you. Why? It's all physical. It doesn't matter. And if I go over here and relate to God, it's still not connected. So I live a certain way. I live out rules and regulations. I live out something that doesn't impact my heart. There isn't because what? It's separate. But that's a fallacy because ultimately when you and I just live in the physical reality of the do's and don'ts about touch this, don't touch that, about being, uh, trying to be a good person instead of a bad person, what happens is it leaves our soul wanting and longing for something more. It does, because it doesn't answer, religion doesn't answer to the deepest need we have. The deepest need we have is not to be a good person. The deepest need we have is to know Jesus. By the way, Jesus makes you a good person. You don't become a good person on your own. 
And that's the difference. And this is why I want to close with this, because this, this just hit me this week when we were... Um, anybody watch Bear Grylls? He's had a couple TV shows. He's the wild man that goes... He used to have Man vs. Wild, and now he has a show called basically Running Wild with Bear Grylls, which he takes a celebrity away for two days, puts them in like the most extreme context, makes them eat really strange food, and they do you know, death-defying things. And it's really a very fascinating kind of hour-long program because part of what happens in, in this is if you don't know Bear Grylls or his testimony, uh, a number of years ago, he came to know Jesus through the Alpha Course. Um, he's from England, and he got saved through that, and he had this transformation in him, and so now he's, he's not this Bible-thumping like, okay, everything is going to be about being a Christian, but he, that's a natural part of his expressions. Even on his TV show, he talks about his own experience in faith, and he brings that up in dialogue with the different celebrities that he has on his show. So this last week, he took Nick Jonas out with him into the wilderness. So if you don't know Nick Jonas, you know, Jonas Brothers, Disney, you know, pipeline of talent, all that. And now, you know, Nick's out on his own, doing his own thing. So first service, we had the Nick, Nick Jonas fan club over here. Apparently, they left the service. I don't know where they are. But so anyway, so he takes Nick out. And, and if you don't know the background, the Jonas Brothers grew up in a Christian household. Um, and so they grew up in a very conservative household. And so, and then they got famous. And, uh, and so Disney, kind of like they do with all their stars, they got out there. And, and so, so they're sitting down, and it's really interesting. So, you know, Bear Grylls kind of takes them through the church. He tests them. In fact, it was really cool. Uh, they found a dead bird, and so he gives it to Nick and says, hang on to this. This will be dinner. He's like, really? So he sticks it in his pocket. Then they find some maggots. He says, take this, because this will be really good protein, too. And so he has these maggots and this bird, and they cooked the bird and then wrapped the maggots in the bird, and they ate the bird. It was crazy. So he got Nick Jonas to eat, you know, basically decaying bird and maggots. Really good. Pretty interesting. But anyway, so they're sitting down after having this fabulous meal, and they always just kind of, this is the rhythm of the show. And so he, he sits down, and so Bear starts to ask some questions, just personal questions. So he goes, so he goes tell me about, you said, you know, I know that you have a Christian faith and you grew up in a Christian household. How that, how you've navigated that with your career and with music and with fame. And so he's kind of throwing this question out. And so, so Nick starts to explain, this is what really caught me. So he said, you know, most people don't understand. He said, he said, there was the, the, the part of us that we're on stage. It's, it's like, he said, it's like another world. He said, we step out on stage, people are screaming our names, everybody wants our autograph, we're so popular. He goes, meanwhile, people didn't know that there's another world that we were living in. And he said, even there's like times when, just moments before we go on stage, I'm being disciplined as a young adult by my parents for the wrong that I've done. And then I go up on stage where everybody loves me, but just moments before I was, I was experiencing discipline. And he said, so it was just this, this really strange kind of reality. And so you could tell that wasn't the answer that Bear was waiting to hear. You know, he's like, your Christian faith and how it's just transformed the way you do music. And so Nick's kind of saying, you know, it's, it really was very difficult growing up in that environment. And so he said, well, he, so they went on a further conversation. And he said, yeah, he goes, I, I know that when you were younger, you, you took a purity ring, which is a reminder to make, be morally pure and, and save yourself for marriage. And, and so he goes, he goes, that must have been an amazing experience because you tell me a little bit about that. So Nick's going down, or uh, Bear's going down this road. And so Nick says, he goes, well... He goes, let me tell you how that worked in my life. And this is nothing to slight anybody who's experienced that. You know, a purity ring is very important. But he said, I'll be honest with you. He goes, when we were in youth group, he said, one night, this was the decision that we all needed to have purity rings. And there was about 20 of us. And so we were all given these rings. And there was this overwhelming, like, obligation that if I didn't do it, I would be on the outside. So I took the purity ring, and it wasn't something that I, I, I felt probably, he was describing, he felt more guilt than anything. And so as they're describing this, you could see on Bear's face, this is not the answer he was wanting with that one either. 
But he said, and this is what Nick said. He looked at Barry and he said, I, I hope it doesn't disappoint you. He goes, but I don't wear that ring anymore. And so this conversation is going on. And then it is great because Barry said, listen, he goes, I, I understand where you're coming from. He said, if somebody took my teenage years and broadcasted them all over media and television, he goes, it would have been a scary sight as well. And then they moved on to eating more decayed bird and maggots, you know, whatever the show had. But I remember sitting there and I remember after the show was over, I just felt so heavy. I felt so heavy because as I watched Nick Jonas, who grew up in a Christian household, sitting on this, this TV, of all of the, the fame and the fortune and, and the popularity that has come to him, but being raised in a Christian household, all he came away with is that I'm not good enough, that I feel condemned, that it's so restrictive. See, here's the reality. When I watch this, I'm thinking, Nick Jonas knew the truth. Not the truth that he needed to know. He knew the truth of legalism. He knew the truth of religion. He knew the truth of good and bad behavior. That's the truth he grew up in. Nothing against Nick's parents. But what I saw in that is that he never got around to actually knowing the truth in Jesus. And as I watched that, it grieved me even more because I look at Courtney and Jordan and sometimes I look at their lives, and I know I grew up in a Christian household, and this is not a slide on any Christian household, but be very careful. It's very easy to raise moral kids that don't know Jesus. And that's a great tragedy. That our kids could grow up knowing the truth of morality and purity and right living, but never knowing the author of truth being Jesus, because he's the one that will transform them. The last thing that we want our kids to be is compliant. We want them to be transformed. And some of you are adults now, and you grew up in that. And your flavor of Christianity was very judgmental, very condemning, and you struggle to this day to know the author of truth because you keep trying to work your way towards him. You hear this said all the time, but if you haven't heard anything through this whole series, hear this. Knowing Jesus means you know the truth. You can't discover the truth apart from him. But the truth comes in the form of a relationship, not in the form of rules and regulations. So for all of us, whether we grew up in a Christian household or not, Jesus is calling us to a personal connection with him that transforms our soul. Here's the reality. When you follow Jesus, you become moral, not because you want to or try to, but because he helps you to become that. He transforms you from the inside out, so he touches every area of your life. The moment we come along and say, man, I got to get my act together for Jesus, is the moment you fall on your face, because you can't. That's why we need him. And so in that reality, Jesus says, listen, all the things that you think are supposed to be about your faith are things that I do on your behalf through transforming you, not so that you can be good enough. We have to get over this. Don't introduce people to Christianity. Introduce people to Jesus. And if we start there, let him transform our souls. Would you close your eyes? Just as we conclude today, I want to close with this. So John wants us to know the truth, and he says it very clearly. The truth for us is not some concept. The truth is not some tablet or some book or some, some concept that comes to us and says this is the truth. The truth comes in the form of Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, to relate to humanity in a way that only God can do. And so if we're going to remember the truth, and we're going to realize that there, the sin that has impacted our life doesn't have to lead to death, that we're going to realize that we truly are accepted and loved by God and, and embraced into his family, 
and that ultimately that knowing truth means knowing Jesus. That means that everything that we've talked about in this series comes down to one thing. Do I know Jesus? Do I want to know Jesus? That's the question for each one of us today. And so I'm going to, just as we conclude, I'm going to ask if, if, if you're here and as you've listened to the words today from the, the scriptures and you've heard what I've communicated about to truly know truth means to know Jesus. And you know that in, in your experience in life, you have, even you would admit, you know a lot about Jesus, but if you were honest with yourself right now, you would say, you know what, I really don't know Jesus. I know about him. You may have attended church and for all of your life, maybe you've just come shortly or recently, and, but you have this information, but you know what, it hasn't translated yet. It hasn't impacted inside yet. It hasn't caused you to see the way that you used to live begin to change. But today, for the first time, you realize that this is personal. This is God coming to you right now saying, I want to know you in a personal, relational way that will change everything about you. And your desire is to experience that knowing that the reason that Jesus, when he comes at a relational level, can do that is because he took your sin personally. He didn't pawn off the payment for our sin to anybody else but himself. In fact, because of our sin and brokenness, he personally died on the cross for us. He personally experienced the pain and the suffering and the rejection that came with his execution because all the while he knew that if he did that, that he could say to you, your sin doesn't have to lead to death. Your sin through the forgiveness that comes through him actually leads to life. And if that's what you desire today, then what he's going to ask you to do is he's going to ask you to make a commitment, not a decision, a commitment. Because I want you to understand something. The God of the universe is desiring to adopt you today. And he's already written up the contract. And you know what he's done? He signed it in Jesus' blood. He signed the contract of your adoption that says, I choose to love, accept you, and make you a part of my family. But then he says to you, now it's your turn. Now it's your turn. I want you as well to sign those papers that say, yeah, I agree. I now belong to you. I belong in your family. I no longer live as an orphan, lost, confused, struggling, but I live in your family because what Jesus has done for me. If that's what you're desiring today, I'm going to ask you to do something very simple. I'm going to ask you to, to lift both of your hands. And the reason we ask you to do that is you're lifting your hands as a child lifts their hands to their father for an embrace, for protection, for care, for fun, that the, that child looking up to dad and saying, please embrace me. And as you do that today, as your hands are lifted as a sign before him today that you're saying, I'm giving my life to you, then he reciprocates and he extends his hand, which has already been there, down to you to embrace you into his family. Lord Jesus, would you, would you solidify that in the lives of people right now? that we're coming to you. Jesus, you've made a way to the Father for us so that we can know God, and in that, we experience life. Let that life be breathed into us today. And then those of us, the rest of us, pray, Lord, that you would help us, that if we've made that commitment, we've experienced that, remind us again, Jesus, who you are. Remind us of the truth that we know in you, not about you, so that our lives are different, that our lives are transformed, that our lives are not about trying to be good and right and pure, but our lives reflect that simply because we passionately follow and know you in every aspect of our lives. We thank you, Jesus, that you are present, that you are at work in us. In your name, amen.